for sticking around for the second part of this, this session. Uh, I don't think I could have asked for a better introduction, uh, a better grounding and foundation for my paper than what Fanula has just given you. So I don't, I will, because I've already written it, but I don't need to argue why ex-servicemen were seen as loyalists or could be labelled as loyalists in the era and days and years of the early free state. But um, we'll, we'll jump right into it. And of course, as part of that, she also mentioned it's under the headings and the definitions of the Irish Grants Committee that both ex-servicemen and their families could and were labelled as loyalists and could be seen as loyalists in relation to the work of that Grants Committee. But I will trot over a certain amount of, of familiar territory here. From 1922, um, the Free State Government was faced with an important problem, amongst many others. What would they do with the tens of thousands of British ex-servicemen and their families living within its national territory and part of its citizenry? Would it afford them, the, those men, the hero status received in the UK and elsewhere in the Empire, as well as its perks, such as pensions, medical care, homes and land? Or, as was seen in many successor states of Europe after the First World War, would it label those men as anti-revolutionaries and loyalists to the old order, punish them and or drive them out of the new state? In the end, none of these options were chosen, but rather a policy of equal citizenship, respectful accommodation, but also cautious management, especially in relation to nationalist feelings. This policy reflected a broader scheme of cordial and productive relations with Britain in 1923 to 32, which at times led to the Common Nagaya government being denounced by some opponents as pro-British. This willful policy of accommodation of British ex-servicemen, as well as the Protestant minorities previously mentioned, by the Irish government after independence is one of the abiding positive legacies of the foundation and establishment of the Irish Free State. That being said, the caveat of all of this must be acknowledged to prevent a utopian picture of ex-servicemen's lives in Ireland forming. As the works of many historians, including the aforementioned Paul Taylor, Neil, Neil Richardson and Brian Hughes, of course, have shown, all was not rosy in the garden after 1918 or after 1922, in spite of the government's official policy. For example, throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the Southern Irish Loyalist Relief Association, which took up many ex-servicemen's cases due to the failings of the British Legion in Ireland, made repeated allegations through the press, pamphlets and speeches about how, quote, ex-servicemen were eking out miserable existences, slowly dying of starvation, whole families living in hovels, consumption rampant among them, and so on, unquote. Southern Irish loyalists were not alone, as, he, as Brian Hughes has also argued. Quote, they were, as a, as, as a minority population, suffering a crisis of identity, unquote, during the 1920s. However, their isolation was negated by the commonality of their situation with those of other minority groups and those, of loyal, of those loyal to the old orders, who were caught up in and subject to the hardship violence and death during the nationalist wars that both represented and emerged as a result of the decline and fall of Europe's multi-ethnic empires after 1918. Additionally, they can also be argued to have not been alone in the Irish context as victims, but rather peers um, of at least two other groups of citizens of the Irish Free State. The first being men from all social, political and religious backgrounds who had served in the British Armed Forces during as well as after the Great War, the ex-servicemen. The second group was their families and even their other dependents, usually aged mothers. 
It is the latter and to date relatively undocumented group that forms the focus of this paper. The uniqueness of the Irish post-Great War and post-1922 situation gave rise to a variety of issues related to the ex-servicemen that have yet to be documented. One of these was what to do with the legacies and estates of then dormant private Irish charities that had been dedicated to supporting the wives and families of British service personnel, both uh, living and deceased, as well as ex-servicemen themselves. It is the purpose of this paper to provisionally address this question and thus further develop and support the implicit thesis espoused by Irish ex-servicemen's historiography to date and, to a lesser degree, that of the foundation and establishment of the Irish Free State. Namely, that while the Irish Free State government was unwilling to provide welfare and care as well as housing and land to British ex-servicemen based upon their status, which would have afforded them that special treatment elsewhere in the empire, it was willing to permit other agencies to do so within its national boundaries. Additionally, this paper seeks to illustrate the role played by the Irish Free State Courts in legitimising the existence, purpose and functions of those charities after 1922 and thus legitimising the existence and status of ex-servicemen and their families in the new state. All of this will be done through a brief account and analysis of two court cases that were contested in the Irish High Court between 1924 and 1929 over the legacies of then two dormant Dublin-based charities. The cases were contested by several belligerent parties and interests. The legacies in question were those of the Seaton Association Fund, uh, illustrated on on the left there, and the Royal Hibernian Military School in the Phoenix Park, illustrated on the right. The Seaton Association Fund was a benevolent fund which was established in 1872 by the Seaton Needlework Association to provide grants for Crimean War soldiers' widows and the wives of the Dublin garrison whom it employed in in the production of army shirts. The Royal Hibernian Military School was a school and home for the sons and daughters until the mid 1800s of deceased Irish soldiers. It was founded in 1765, originally as a Protestant charity, but became, but later became multi-denominational. And from 1770 to 1922, an estimated 9,000 boys and 1,000 girls passed through its doors. The belligerent parties and other interests in the two cases were the Irish government, the British government, the government of Northern Ireland, the charitable commissioners, or the commissioners of charitable donations and bequests for Ireland, hereafter known as the commissioners, and the Society of St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage in Glasnevin. To these were added two functioning British military charities, the Royal Drummond Institution, uh, a school and home for orphaned girls of, British, of Irish soldiers in the British Army, then located at Bray, and the Hibernian Marine School, a school and home for boys, uh, Irish sailors, or uh, sailors from the, uh, the Royal Navy, uh, which was then located at Clontarf. The aforementioned St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage ha- was added by the court Uh, as a new interest in the case in in 1928, along with the Hibernian Marine School, solely because it was reputedly home to some 15 to 20 boys, children of deceased um, British soldiers. Lastly, I must answer one additional question. Why these two charities? 
Well, the two cases of the Seton Association Fund and the Hibernian School are the focus of this paper for three reasons. The first is that they represent an, an important and unique welfare outlet for British ex-servicemen and thus potentially loyalists in Ireland after 1918, or more specifically, their families and dependents. Secondly, they represent a new addition to the historiography of the British ex-servicemen as a whole. And third, they have never been documented or at least set within the context of the Irish ex-servicemen and loyalist historiographies. So let's look at the proceedings, such as the origins, the course, and the rationale of these two cases. The origins of these two disputes lay in a single letter. It was received by the commissioners from the British Army Council in June 1923 in the wake of the Civil War. The letter outlined both the council's claim upon the Seton Fund specifically and its plan for the same, which was to actually take it and give it to the Royal Patriotic Fund, um, which had existed from 1854, which was dedicated to the support of British uh, war, of war widows and orphans. So it was going to give them their fund and they would administer it. But given its statutory mandate, um, but more especially due to the firm position taken by one of its members, the Master of Roles, Justice Charles O'Connor, a former governor of the Hibernian Military School, the commissioners refused to comply. Consequently, legal counsel was sought and an application made to the Attorney General of the Irish Free State to pursue a case through the Chancery Division of the High Court. The matter was brought before the court on the 20th of November 1923, and between that month and March 24, the claims of all five aforementioned parties were received and considered by the court. And then just to remind you of who those parties were. On the 16th day of March 24, um, the court ruled that because the purpose of the Seton scheme, so that was its legal framework that had been established, were still valid and feasible, the funds ought to remain vested in the commissioners where they presently then sat and administered by a new board of trustees. The fact that the Seton's last honorary secretary and treasurer still resided in Dublin and was known to the commissioners no doubt facilitated this ruling. The court then invited all five belligerents to nominate two potential trustees each for the fund. Of particular note here are those chosen trustees, most of whom were connected in some way with what I call the old order. And these were the Chief Lord Chief Justice of Ireland, Thomas Francis Maloney, who was also a trustee of the Royal Drummond Institute. Um, the uh, General Right Honourable Brian, uh, Brian Mahan, who may be well known to most of you as the former commander of the Irish Division during the Great War, uh, who was also a trustee of the Land Trust, which was building homes for ex-servicemen in Ireland, and a member of the new Shannadair. Uh, Major General J.J. Uh, Gerrard, a former principal medical officer. Um, James Robinson, also a trustee of the Royal Drummond and a, a, a well-known Protestant solicitor, the clerk to the Lord Chief Justice, and then also a George Duggan Esquire. Similar to ex-servicemen in general with respect to state policy and these two con contested charities, these men had found places, acceptance and respect in the New Ireland despite their former affiliations and potential loyalties. Now with regards to the, the Hibernian School. So as well as inciting the commissioners to contest the claims of the Seton Fund, the letter from the Army Council also precipitated the former taking similar steps um, at the same time in relation to the estate of the military school. This was not because the council actually had laid claim upon it, but rather again because of Justice O'Connor. 
While similar steps were taken in relation to both legacies in the summer of 1923, the military school case differed substantially to that of Seton. It was more complex, of longer duration, included more interests, and was also subject to additional influencing factors. That complexity uh, even extended to the estate itself, um, the composition of which was actually unclear to all belligerents until February 1925. Eventually, it was determined that the Hibernian estate consisted of a collection of cups and trophies, an organ, 20 acres of land in County Carlow, but also, and most importantly, several allotments of stocks and shares similar to the Seton Fund. Over the course of 1926-8, the several parties endeavoured to convince the court of their respective claims. Central to those proceedings was the commissioner's strenuous argument that the estate should remain in Ireland, but also that when it was awarded to the Royal Drummond Institute and the St Vincent de Paul, as evidently it believed would happen or simply wanted to happen, it, the commissioners, would retain control of the capital. The commissioners believed that the granting of the capital directly to both institutions would not only contravene the original purposes and directives of the various funds, i.e. that the capital be retained and the interest be used to, for the aid of servicemen's children, but that it would also lead to those, um, those two interests uh, or the funds being utilised for other purposes. Eventually, in July 1928, after a total of 34 months before the courts, the court issued its ruling. The claims made by the Irish, British and Northern Irish governments were all rejected and the court accepted both the argument of the commissioners that the funds ought to remain in Ireland and the argument of the Royal Drummond Institute that it was the most legitimate claimant um, upon the Hibernian estate being because it was, quote, the only institute in Ireland carrying out the work of that defendant corporation, unquote. The Carlow land holdings were split evenly between the Royal Drummond Institute and the Hibernian Marine School so that they, and thus the British service orphans, could continue to benefit from their rents. And then the courts split the liquid assets between the St. Vincent Orphanage and the Royal Drummond Institute in a ratio of one to three, but placed again the capital in the care of the commissioners. Now we come to the last and most important matter. Why? Why did these three governments and two other entities fight for so long over the legacies of two charitable organisations? What did those legacies uh, comprise? And I've touched on that already. The simple answer is money. Stocks and bonds worth thousands of pounds. The legacies' existence in Ireland and the British Army Councils and then subsequently the War Offices um, a desire to lay claim on them, along with that of the governments of Northern Ireland, can also be set within the context of post-war military welfare situation in Ireland. As previous studies have both argued and shown, there were about 100,000 former British ex-servicemen demobilised within the 26 counties after the Great War. Those men who did not emigrate received far more generous pensions than their Northern Irish or British counterparts, although they did not have, although they did not have the latter's broader public sympathy and active voluntary charitable support, all based upon that perceived debt to those who had served and suffered, and indeed were still suffering, and their dependents who had died during the war. In Ireland, most able-bodied ex-servicemen received pensions at rates that were offered only to disabled ex-servicemen in the UK as well as in Ireland because, they're poor, because of their poor chances of getting future employment equated to a disability or perceived disability. 
Thus, substantial economic burden. What, Taylor, what Paul Taylor has shown to be pensions rates three times that on the average of the UK, uh, servicemen and post-war unemployment rates four times higher than in the UK, was borne such a, a, a substantial economic burden was borne by the British state and thus the British taxpayer um, based on the aforementioned debt, even though it included all of those men who had enlisted in the, on the island of Ireland between 1914 and 18. However, the British government did take on that burden voluntarily, it should be noted. What can thus be theorised relative to the British state's claim upon the charitable legacies in Ireland is that it was, on some level, seeking a financial contribution of sorts from Ireland for its outlay for citizens that were, after December 1922, or 21 even, uh, of a foreign country, albeit a dominion. Either way, each of the legacies of the Seton Association Fund and the Hibernian Military School, that's first, is the Seton Fund, comprised a selection of stocks and bonds, which by 1924 equated to values of £3,500 and £8,000 respectively. These, were de these are detailed more de in clearly in the slide behind me. So that's the Seton Fund, and those are the values of the stocks in each of the, the various stocks and bonds. It was not simply the capital sums that the parties were, also, were interested in, but also their ability to generate more money through dividends. An example of how lucrative these could be can be seen from the first windfall received by the new trustees of the Seton Association in October 1924. Um, that was £410 obtained from the Bank of Ireland through the commissioners. The sum had been uh, accumulated over the preceding only 20 months. The returns for the St. Vincent de Paul and the, the Royal Drummond Institute from their combined legacies in 1929 were £137 and uh, £221 respectively, uh, alleging, uh, allegedly conforming to that 1 to 3 ratio. So, some concluding remarks. The historiography of the British ex-servicemen in Ireland is a transnational one. The men in question were more often born uh, in Ireland, had served in the British Armed Forces all over the globe between 1914 and 18, if not longer, into 22, then returned to Ireland and became citizens of a different state while continuing to receive welfare and care benefits for their service from the agencies of what was effectively a foreign government operating within the Irish Free State. Such transnationalism was acknowledged and reflected by the hundred-odd military charities that existed in the United Kingdom, Britain and Ireland, before and during the Great War. Owing to the size, disposition and transient nature of the British Armed Forces and their families, many, if not most, charities, military charities, operated throughout, uh, operated or um, operated throughout or extended their support to people throughout the entire United Kingdom and sometimes the Empire. Even those schools and homes which were geographically situated accepted entrance from anywhere once they met the requisite requirements or forces affiliation. Such transnationalism had the potential to breed loyalties to the British state, monarchy, armed forces, and even the imperial project. But equally, it could simply and often erroneously lead people to assume the same of people solely based on their association with the British armed forces. This paper further illustrates the legal and institutional difficulties associated with the creation of the Irish Free State in the aftermath of the Great War. Situa uh, situated within 
analysis of ex-servicemen's relationship with, the polit with politics after the war and then independence, coupled with their relationship with loyalty, loyalism, both real and perceived, it adds a new angle relative to the families of ex-servicemen who were the focus of the Seaton Association Fund especially, and other charities like the Soldiers and Sailors and Airmen's Families Association, not documented here. It can also be placed alongside the recent works of Thomas More on the legal relationship, entanglements and conflicts between the Irish and British governments in the 1920s relative to that new state's Protestant and potentially loyalist minorities. The Seaton Fund and the Royal Hibernian Military School cases represent important events in the history of the British ex-serviceman in Ireland and his family. And their, uh, and their outcomes, it might be theorised, may have informed the Commonwealth government's policy towards those men, and thus British loyalists during its tenure, if not successive uh, administrations. Yet, before, yet more important, perhaps, is the inescapable fact that the Irish Free State Courts and also the commissioners and even the government to a degree both legitimised the existence, purpose and functions of those charities after 1922 and also legitimised the existence, if not actual status, of ex-servicemen and their families in Ireland. Thank you.